This is Joel Spolsky, the host of the Stack Overflow podcast. Our podcast depends on listeners like you, who aren't you because you're already listening, and we need more listeners like you. We don't have any kind of fancy marketing budget, so please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you. But they'll be okay if I basically approximate out three days into the future what the world events might be and make pop culture <laughs> references that haven't happened, right? Absolutely. Don't you have a machine that can do that? I thought that's what you guys were well, doing I over mean, here. Don't, don't give away the secret here. All right. <laughs> this is the Stack Overflow Podcast, episode 118, recorded Thursday, October 12th, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City, where more than 8 million people live in peace and enjoy the benefits of democracy. Remember, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere which is the most threatening slogan I've ever heard. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Oracle. Stack Overflow appreciates Oracle's support for this podcast and for our community. Learn more about all the ways Oracle supports open source, Java, and developers like you at oracle.com developers. And the experimental prototype community of tomorrow at Walt Disney World's Epcot <laughs> Center, Figment the Imagination Dragon and his creepy animatronic friends will take you on a magical journey through 11 unique attractions that are all basically just a slow-moving cart in a tunnel made of low-res video screens. <laughs> Visit Walt Disney's Epcot Center and see what the past thought the future would look like. <laughs> On today's podcast, we have our usual crew, CTO David Fullerton. Hi. News editor Ilana Yatsaki. Hello, everyone. Producer Jess Pardue. Hi. And special guest Rachel Ferrigno. Hello. Our very own content marketing manager and Michael Ludden, director of product at IBM Watson Developer Labs and ARVR Labs. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. Joel Spolsky is out this week volunteering for Skates Not Hates, where he donates his time <laughs> to help teens in underprivileged neighborhoods ice dance their way to better opportunities. <laughs> Which makes me your host, Jay Hanlon, VP, general manager of Stack Overflow and the original kazoo player for the Bengals. Welcome back, everyone. Hi. Hey, Jay. How Thanks, is everybody? Jay. I'm not sick this week. You are not For sick real, this week. For real, not sick this week. And I am not sick, which means she was telling the truth. All <laughs> right. So Alana's long national terror is, is past now. So that, that, is, that is exciting. Congratulations on your return to good health. And what's going on, everybody? David, you have nothing. You're not angry about anything this week is what I've been told. Is that true? I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. That's fine. <laughs> well, let's get right to it. <laughs> We are especially excited to have Michael Ludden here with us today. Michael frequently speaks and keynotes at conferences all around the world. I won't name them, but think of big conferences. It's ones like that. He's worked at Google Play, Samsung, was a founding member of the Developer Relations Program at HTC. But we are especially excited to hear about some of the things you're doing today, Michael, as Director of Product at IBM Watson Developer Labs. And... Yeah. AR VR labs. So let's start right there. So for our listeners, I think everyone is probably pretty familiar with Watson right now. If you've read like any of the Sherlock Holmes books, everybody knows who that <laughs> no. No, it's it's a different one. <laughs> right, right, right. To my understanding, he plays Magic the Gathering. Do I have that right? Well, you know what's interesting? If we had named Watson after the character in Sherlock Holmes, we would be naming it after the less smart of the two. <laughs> to be called Sherlock in that case. So it's always my rebuttal that, to people. That is a great point. point. <laughs> Probably. But also the one who was not known to be a drug addict. So he had that well, going that for him. Yeah. If you watch the Benedict Cumberbatch version. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. <laughs> so, sorry, is Developer Labs and ARVR Labs, these are two separate labs. No, so basically, yeah, I... I I couldn't figure out, and if anybody wants to help me workshop this, I couldn't figure out a better way to indicate 
that we have an initiative that I started as part of my team, which is called Watson Developer Labs, called ARVR Labs. And it simply takes our mission, which is to build products and tools for developers that solve use case-based problems they face with IBM technology, basically a, a layer above our smorgasbord of you know, Watson APIs, and then just applying that to the nascent ARVR, you know, self-identified developer community that I think is, last I heard, about 7 million strong now. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. So if I can, let's start with the core mission a little bit. I want to dig into the ARVR thing, but what's the fundamental kind of purpose behind the developer labs? What kinds of things are you trying to help developers to do? Yeah, so I mean, we, we believe that part of our mission is to help IBM define and address new and nascent developer communities that we can serve with, you know, sort of an easy button, like making it easy to do specific things. An example of that would be the VR speech sandbox, which we built that Ubisoft used in the Star Trek Bridge Crew virtual reality game. If anybody's familiar with that, it's an online co-op, you know, Starship Commander kind of game where you need to use teamwork. And if you don't have a human to play with, bad for you, but you can actually talk to fake virtual Star Trek shipmates the way you would a normal person. They might not be as pithy and they may actually be more confident and that's powered by Watson. And that was meant to just be a showcase for that toolkit and to get it onto the minds of a broader set of developers. And then also, you know, that sort of thing where we say, hey, we have all these services. They're sometimes unintelligible and difficult to understand. Let's figure out, you know, what developers are looking for and need. And is there a uniquely differentiated fit that IBM has to offer that we can build and make available, you know, open source on GitHub so people can, can do it. And it's sort of a win-win. That's awesome. So please tell me that when IBM built this sort of powerhouse sort of VR robot that you could talk to and address by voice that whatever you say to him at the beginning of the game, the first response, I hope, is what are you doing, Dave? Please. <laughs> Any chance? No. Oh, that's not Star Trek, Jay. Jeez. No, but it's a, it was, the, it was the, the whole IP. Okay. No, we got to get them all in there. Normally, it's a Terminator reference, you know, like Skynet, but no. Yeah. The thing that is a bit different between how we market Watson and what it functionally is for developers specifically is that it's sort of an all-you-can-eat, you know, cafeteria smorgasbord, and you take pieces from it, and you could build a robot that does or does not say, hello, how are you doing, Hal? But that's up to the individual developer and however they want to consume the technology and use it. And if they want to be creepy, by all means, have at it. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean creepy in that way, specifically only. Understood, understood. You're willing to tolerate a certain kind of creepiness, as are we all. Uh, within the terms of service, yeah. <laughs> so having played around with the new I iOS, whatever number it might be, yeah. as far as I can tell, AR is mostly for pretend digital rulers and dropping <laughs> furniture into my living room that isn't really there. Yeah. But I'm guessing you see broader applications. And I'm just interested, what are you seeing either people building now or what do you view as the future of where kind of AR is going? So, yeah, that's very interesting. That is most of what we see today. I mean, I, I always talk about this IKEA Places app that uses mm -hmm. Apple's AR kit, which you're alluding to, yep. to allow you to place IKEA furniture in your living room. And it's generally a giant advertisement for IKEA. Where our interest is in both VR and AR is primarily in the long-term non-gaming and entertainment use cases. I believe that you know, AR and VR will eventually become the next major computing paradigm. We've got to work a lot of things out, like not doing skeuomorphism, standardizing input methods and whatnot. But the most practical use cases for enterprise that I've seen of late, and I think that both of these areas are going to be touching very strongly education, therapy, recovery and training use cases, in addition to kind of collaboration and productivity. But remote workforces using either a phone, a tablet, or some headwear can, you know, if you have to fix something and you don't know exactly how you can hold your phone up, and we've seen some, some efforts to make it so that they can get remote help and you can kind of point out what needs to happen next and where it needs to go, and it can guide you dynamically 
using augmented reality to overlay information on top of whatever you're trying to fix, for example. That's a use case that I've seen quite a few different ways that people have sliced it in AR already. And of course, that's kind of low-hanging fruit in a lot of ways. So one thing that's always struck me, I, I like gadgets and I like nerdy stuff. And me too. What do you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's crazy <laughs> weird, right? No, I guess that I look like such a athlete, man. <laughs> but I've always found the headset is an enormous point of resistance for me. Yeah. Like I can envision sitting down in a room to do nothing, like dedicated plan. I brought enough food to play video games for seven hours, or I could before I had kids. <laughs> and I'm going to do that. But like when you're like now, just put on that headset. It may be just a generational thing. That for me is like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Like that's weird. Yeah. I don't know why there's, it feels like a weird level of commitment. Yeah. Do you think that everyone just gets over that and that's older people or do you think the interface no. shifts? I think the interface shifts. I think you're right. It's about the form factor. And that's why I think ultimately AR and VR are going to merge and become one platform. But right now they're distinct and they even have distinct use cases. Like what I just described for augmented reality, you know, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to put on a VR headset and try to achieve the same thing. Certainly not if you're trying to do something in the real physical world. However, and I, I always like to give a credit to president of ODG for this quote, but I love it. He says, I think we're gonna discover that VR is just full screen for AR. And so if you could imagine a scenario, once the form factor for VR headsets gets down to the size of about a, you know, a pair of glasses, and you can use a pass-through camera to see the world and have a high resolution image in the glasses, so it could function like prescription dynamically, but then, you know, it's also untethered and it has mobile six degrees of freedom. These things are coming. The processing power is still, you know, on its way in terms of mobile. But I think eventually we'll get to either someone beams something directly into your eyes or you're wearing a contact lens or you're wearing glasses and you could be looking around a room, seeing metadata on people in augmented reality and then say you want to play Minecraft and then just hit a button and it goes full screen. You pop in earbuds and you're functionally in virtual reality. And how is that any different? But so that's kind of where I see the form factors going. And it is it is cumbersome, right? I do think there is a generational aspect to it where, you know, a lot of people were uncomfortable having TVs in their homes in the you know mid-20th century, earlier 20th century. And we got more comfortable with that. Same thing with mobile and the form factor and using the internet and trusting the internet for fact-checking, et cetera. It's just a matter of getting accustomed to, okay, people will wear, you know, headgear. Although ideally, you know, that headgear can be stylish and doesn't have to stand out or, or identify you as a, a weirdo the way Google Glass did when I wore it, for example, a few years ago. The, the society <laughs> also does need to have that, that norm and convention built in. I have to say, I'm torn between the abject terror I had when you're describing like looking around the room and seeing people and getting <laughs> metadata. Like that's like what the Terminator does before he kills you to take yeah. your leather jacket, basically. <laughs> yeah. And that's a fear, right? I mean, what are you going to do with that data? With great power comes great responsibility. Great responsibility. <laughs> the spider terminator. I actually, it was interesting. I never thought about that, that the blocking out the world sense, and as well as the, the weight and everything, maybe part of the VR thing, and that if you just imagine AR, where like you're in see-through glasses, but the VR one, that's, I never thought about it that way. That's a really cool kind of convergence. I hope it happens soon. I mean, it would be cool to try. <laughs> and actually, HoloLens is kind of halfway there in some ways, right? It's tethered to a PC, but it's inside-out tracking. So it could be untethered and mobile if it had an onboard CPU. And also it is functionally augmented reality, but it can give you some semblance of like a full screen virtual experience. So that's kind of, to me, it kind of hints at the future a bit. This all makes me feel a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I don't, have any of you read Ready Player One? Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. Okay, of course. So, so I actually just saw the trailer for it and it looks incredible. But Spielberg, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Yep. But at what point does it end though? Like what happens when we get to a point when we're living our entire lives? in vr and, and we're not touching yeah. another soul because we you know we, we don't stop at just like you know this is for work we have to go all the way it's like 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing, I read a bunch of futurist novels. So I've, I've read Ready Player One. I've read a quadrilogy about how a fictionalized Google could create the singularity by, you know, an email suggestion client, like way out there stuff. <laughs> Things about, you know, uh, neural mesh and, and stuff like that. And so I've considered a lot of these possible futures. And at the end of the day, I always come back to, we create the future that we as a society envision. Just think about Star Trek, how that sort of shaped technological developments over the last few decades. And we're still endeavoring to do a lot of the things that were fictionalized there. And what's a cell phone, if not a tricorder? And there certainly is, and, and I don't want to downplay it at all, the potential for a horrible dystopian future to occur where we're all in our little <laughs> zone and we never go outside because it's awful and the virtual world is hunky-dory. But I think, you know, if you actually look at what technological advances have been throughout the, you know, the, the last century at least, most of it has been in service of augmenting human ability and it hasn't actually resulted in us not interacting with one another, even computers. I mean, yes, I am sitting alone in a garden right now talking to a computer screen, but, <laughs> but I am frequently at a table, you know, also talking to a computer screen, but people are corporeally near me. I think there's a human need. I know this sounds like very, very faint rebuttal, but, you know, there's a human need for connection. We need sunlight. We need exercise. We're tribal. We, we work in groups. We like to exchange ideas and we're pack people, you know, so I think that those aspects are going to mitigate what people will actually want to do. And of course, there will probably be a few people that have enough money and, and have the interest to just disconnect from the real world and live in VR. But I think there will also be ethical concerns and there will be restrictions on what could be built that you know governments will put in place. There's a whole host of stuff to be worked out. My main thing is, and I like to say this, so if you look at Western society, especially movies in the last 20 years, I've been disturbed by what they envision because they're almost universally negative. And I get why. And I like watching them too. Like if I watch Ex Machina or if I watch, you know, any of the Terminator movies or, or anything about a future, it's generally dark and gritty and a bit cathartic because of that. And they're well made and they're real questions we need to wrestle with. Like 2049 Blade Runner, I watched that the other day. Like what okay. is it to be human? Yeah, it's good. It's, it's really interesting. And I like the questions it poses. But I think we have a bit of a lack of imagination. And I worry that because we only envision killer robots and Skynet and things that are going to destroy us, we're not seeing movies about how AI can, you know, potentially cure cancer or solve death or, you know, eliminate poverty, give everybody health care that's fair and equitable. You know, there's a lot of things that can be done that we need to envision. And I'll give you an example just really quickly. I know I'm on a, I'm on a long rant. Sorry about that. But um, <laughs> that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Japan, for example, has anybody heard of the cartoon Doraemon? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So Doraemon is a cartoon, essentially the equivalent of a Saturday morning cartoon about a cat who comes back from the future. And it's a happy little cat and it plays with these kids. And essentially technology is from the future is treated like magic. So he has this thing called an anywhere door that can take you anywhere. He just takes it out of his endless pocket, which is also provided by some magical future technology, as was his time traveling. These products are very aptly named. They're really good. They're all really good. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, I don't know if those are the actual names. <laughs> but the point is, if we envision a more hopeful, inventive, creative future where technology can essentially function like magic, I think that needs to be a counterbalance to our pop culture society because we do build what we envision. And I'm worried that, you know, everybody thinks along the lines of the most negative possible outcome for AI and for technology and you know, all this sort of stuff. But I think if we can think through and have like, you know, people being thought leaders and then proselytizing and spreading those ideas of positive change and how it can help lives. Like I've heard stories of how VR has helped people who've had strokes that have lost motion in arms recover motion in their arms where, where previously that was impossible. Something connects synapses in the brain when you see your intention reflected in VR, even if it's not in real life. And 
you know, the transformative power is there too. We just need to kind of add some Hollywood muscle to it, I think. You know, it's funny as you're talking, which struck me, I worry a lot with phones and stuff that I or kids and my kids, there's a shorter attention span problem and we're getting sucked into things. But to your point, like the core technologies we get, we tend to use them for what we want. And if we assume we want and should want human interaction, like I think about like Alana, you're worrying very reasonably, like, do we stop interacting? Do we only live virtually? But like, what, what's one step removed from that? Like, think about FaceTime, right? Just sort of instant effective video chat is like that. It's like a logical worry in the past would have been like, oh, my God, you get that people will stop hanging out. They'll just be virtual talking to each other with this video. But that's not how you use it. You don't use it when you could be getting together. It's the opposite. What it does is in moments before you had to only be on the phone, it pulls yeah. you closer to in person because assuming we all want that, it's mostly applied to get more of the interaction we want, not less. No, that's a very good point. Yeah, I don't know. It was just it clicked as you were talking about, you know, what do we want from the technology? How would we apply it for a better future that made us yeah. find, hopefully build it in the first place? And I'm sitting over here like waiting for the Shadowrun universe because I can't, <laughs> wait, I can't wait for that universe. So there is, you know, along the lines of, of what you just said, I think there is something that I've become aware of lately. I'm just curious what you guys think. Where, you know, social media, particularly Facebook and Instagram and the like, can kind of suck us into that and make us feel like we have real friendships and relationships. But we haven't seen many of these people in many years. And sometimes, you know, you ran into somebody once and then all of a sudden they're your comment buddy on things on Facebook. And <laughs> what does that constitute human interaction? It feels like it's functioning as a proxy for it. And it actually is taking some of those interactions out of the, you know, the shared social space and putting into a flat screen in front of us that makes us feel real about things that actually kind of aren't like that person that I met once probably won't come and rescue me from a fire if I'm dying or know even what to do, you know, so. But they'll like your sandwich every day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I can see that one cutting either way, though, because it also gives you the opportunity to interact with people who you otherwise wouldn't, right? Oh, I mean, it's connecting point. people across massive geographical distances and even, you know, across, let's see, social groups and things like that. I think so I don't know how to balance those things. No, you're right. I think for me, the key thing there is like when I feel as though the people who are within my reach physically, that I could be physically being around and hanging out with, I'm preferring instead to do that on Facebook. That's when I kind of see it as a problem. But you're right. I wish Facebook had existed when I was in elementary school. I moved around the Midwest. I lost so many sets of friends. It's like they died back in the day. Like I think back, how did I live? There was no internet. I could never reconnect with these people. And so it is very transformative, especially for people who are kind of scattered across the earth. And it's, it's very wonderful in a lot of ways. I don't mean to just poo-poo it. Michael, you know when you stop seeing people, they don't necessarily die, right? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> what? So when I play hide-and-seek, they don't actually go away? Oh, my gosh. When I close my eyes, the whole world stops I'm existing. I'm troubled that you thought that, and it sounded like you've continued to play hide-and-seek on a semi-regular basis. That's... Uh... Yeah. Well, I mean, people tell me we're in a simulation, so I can't be sure that anyone else is real. It's not, it's not that we're definitely in a simulation. It's that there's no way to be sure we're not in a simulation. And really, when you consider the odds, it's more probable than not that we're in a simulation. Well, oh. yeah. according to algorithms, we're, what, like 23% chance we're in a simulation or well, something isn't, like that? Isn't it I don't I've know heard how you said that, if, that. When we can accurately simulate the world, like do a realistic model with that's sufficiently complex that it would be indistinguishable from reality, then it's almost statistically impossible that we're not already in a simulation we would have to be the first in the you know the multiverse or whatever the most <laughs> sentient beings in all of the universe's history in order to be the ones that created the first simulation and that might be possible <laughs> but 
So, like so to bring it back, I want to go, go back to something. You, so, so you talked about sort of some of the dangers of technology, I think, and you talked about sort of we get the future that we envision. I think one of the things that I'm thinking about, a lot of people are thinking about and talking about right now is sort of the, I guess, unintended consequences of giving ourselves more and more of only what we want to hear and see. Right. And thinking of the, the social networks and the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world, the ability to curate for yourself or have an algorithm curate for you only the things which you enjoy reading, you know, creates these information bubbles yeah. where you only see things you agree with. Yeah, I think that's really dangerous. And that actually speaks to creating ethical AI, right? I have some theories on this. So when mobile apps were starting to come out, when Facebook was first around, and even before then, if you look at MySpace and other things, Twitter as well, they were and are obsessed with making you obsessed, getting you addicted. Because, yep. you know, one of the key metrics is time spent in app and how many times do you go back? How much time a day do you spend in there? And so we certainly don't have any laws and I'm not suggesting that that would be the right move, but... Yeah, the government seems like they'd be good at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, you know, it would be better if there was consensus among thinkers and leaders in the industries that do this, that say, listen, we're going to decry you and denounce you if you build an app that's just designed to get everybody addicted and feeds them the same information they already believe, because that's actually kind of created the culture of outrage that we're building now, which is we have a shorthand because we're always in our own echo chamber for topics. And you can say two words like mm, fake news. And then, you know, everybody's just like, oh, yeah, that's horrible. And, and you can't have an exchange of ideas because then all of a sudden it becomes something else. And so I think that is a danger. And I think not just what we build with AI, but how we train AI, the data input mm -hmm. is so important when we consider how and what to build that actually will help humanity versus just make people spend more time in an app. Yeah, that's another topic I think a lot about it with AI and machine learning, especially sort of the idea that there was this idea, I, I feel like it's going away a little bit now, but there was this assumption that AI would usher in this sort of golden era of perfect rational judgment, you know, and, and remove all of our petty human biases. And then, of course, yeah. what we see is that actually we're just replicating our human biases in our algorithms and in some cases making them worse because they're even more opaque and they're, you know, they're kind of super powered because computers can do things at massive scale that yeah. an individual human cannot. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you, you remember Tay? I know Microsoft probably hates me doing <laughs> oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tay, the Twitter bot that became racist because it was interacted with by a bunch of trolls mostly. And it became so racist it, so quickly. Yeah, it, was, so it really quickly. didn't take yeah. long. So fast. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, that is a real danger. And I think that, you know, I, I deal with this a, a lot. I, there's a lot of considerations with a lot of our different services as to how we decide what we make available. For example, accents in English or dialectic awareness when you're using speech to text oh, and you're, you're speaking in an accent, it's trying to auto-detect your language, but also, also your accent. I mean, do we include things like Appalachian, it, does that qualify? And, and what makes something qualified versus be offensive? And also, you know, there's a lot of cognitive bias that we don't think about when we're talking about implementing AI. So we built a demo that's a sandbox that lets you, in VR, create, modify, or destroy anything with your voice using Watson to showcase the feature. And what I noticed quickly was that in one of the early versions, it had really only been tested on male adult voice types. And so it was having trouble, and, and American as well, is having trouble dealing with anybody with accents or a higher pitched voice, like if they're a female. And that's sort of, you know, that brought it home to me, like how quickly and how easily someone who has never met me, who's playing that experience, could think that, number one, Watson, it sucks because it's not understanding me. And number two, just have sort of a bad experience and feel like this new technology isn't working for them and they're kind of cut out of this new zeitgeist. And 
you know, there's a, there's any number of examples I could bring up on this, but I think that it is very important for us to understand that we have a perspective and a bias and to make sure that we include people along the way in the process to vet ideas and implementations and make sure that we, first of all, understand the market you're going after, but then also understand the sensitivities of what you're trying to do. And there's a lot of, you know, it's really the Wild West, so the rules aren't written and it's hard to anticipate some of these potential outcomes, but it's important to think about them. It's really interesting how like a simple review, like David was saying, is like you'd think that these computerized systems are less likely to have these biases built in. And in fact, they're uber biases. Like it's much worse yeah. because it's such a simple kind of rule set. It's just like, don't understand that voice, right? As opposed to, I am slightly discounting that style of voice in a way I don't understand and that is, that is terrible too. Exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting. So one thing I always like to ask, because I know you are really sort of, I'm going to say king of all product, maybe what they call you <laughs> in the future, but you came from a coding background yourself, right? So how did you first become excited about writing code? I didn't. I needed money. <laughs> so, <laughs> See, that's a very practical answer. That might be the most honest answer we've yeah. ever gotten to that. <laughs> I'm not going to come on Stack Overflow and say, oh, yeah, look at me. I'm the man. So here's my background. I was always a script kitty. That's what I still call myself. I was always hacking this and playing with that. I have two younger brothers. And I was always creating games and systems. You know, when we had a Nintendo or a Super Nintendo, kind of like hack those systems and, and put on like Japanese. You know, it voids your warranty. Realm. I feel like someone should warn Void you. my warranty. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, I always thought that was just a hobby. I studied musical theater in college. I'm sure you're hey. losing, uh -oh. losing a lot hey. of respect for me. You're, you're with your yeah? people here. Yeah, I was a oh, drama major. Alana. Hey, uh, yeah. uh, not you studied musical theater? I, I didn't say musical theater. I'm not ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fair enough. I, no, I actually just couldn't sing or dance, but I was a drama I, major. I grew up doing musical theater and I got my degree in theater education. What? Wow. All right. You learn something new every day. So, I mean, you know how it is. I, I, it, was a, it was a hobby. The entertainment industry is ridiculous. I was a starving actor in LA and I needed money. So I taught myself Flash CS2 to build websites for my artist friends who were uh, trying to become musicians. It was really horrible work because <laughs> it's Flash, a, it's but a, also... It's a good market to say, I'm a starving artist. Let me build yeah. products for my other starving artist friends hey, to, to buy from me. problems that you're aware of, yeah. <laughs> But at the end of the day, it was not advantageous to me because they, as you guys know, and as I'm sure a lot of your audience know, when you build something and you really know what it takes and people flippantly throw out their like changes they think will be tiny, but are actually major architectural overhauls in the back end. It's just a very frustrating thing because they're like, you said you'd do this. And I'm like, yeah, well, I did. I did that. And now you want this. And it's like, yeah, just one tweak. But yeah, that tweak takes, you know, two extra days. So they like to pay me in kind of like an upfront sum. I was really young. And I took that and then they got a bunch of extra work from me all the time. So I burnt out of that eventually. And that was really my first time taking programming of any sort seriously. I'd always, you know, dabbled here and there, but there weren't these great STEM things when I was in school. I wish there had been. And then, you know, where it really came home for me was I had done a stint on a cruise ship as a singer. <laughs> where, by the way, this I just keeps my getting better and better. Pearl. I'm so happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just I'm going to be trolled so hard. I know. I know. But um. And so, you know, I, I hacked my BlackBerry Pearl to get internet connectivity in the middle of the ocean and connected <laughs> to my laptop tablet convertible. This is like 15 years ago, too, 10 years. <laughs> and like the first of its kind. And then when I got back, the first Android phone was coming out. And I was, I've always been very nerdy. No, if you can tell. <laughs> Again, I always thought it was a hobby. But one of my friends that I made through Twitter, just basically begging them for swag for my new HTC G1, the first Android phone, got a promotion and said, you should take my old job. It's in LA. It's flexible. You can pat me on the head, you know, keep doing your acting thing. And 
Uh, you'll get to learn on the job, et cetera. So I took the job. They offered it to me. I was surprised by how much they were paying me relative to what I had been accustomed to earning. And then I realized that I, I really was good at it. I knew a lot more about the phones than a lot of the other people. And I really enjoyed going around and explaining the features. They started sending me to conferences and I met the founder of the HTC developer relations team. And I basically followed him around like a lost puppy for six months and told him, I will learn Android on the job. You will get me for cheap and I will get you results. You won't regret it, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. He was credit to let me join the team. And I worked at HTC for a couple of years. And, you know, there I learned everything about cultivating developer community. We had like, this is debatable, I know, but the bootloader unlocking tool that was one of the first, some people say that's, that is more script kitty stuff. But we also had a value added SDK that we were trying to pitch to developers. Hey, you know, if HTC sends SDK, if you implement this, it's not a lot of work, we'll help you. We'll give you informal co-marketing opportunities and it will let you do X or Y with the hardware. So I did that for a little while. I learned a lot, did a lot of different aspects of the developer relations world job. And then I got poached by Samsung. I worked my way up to head of developer marketing there, and I ran the first Samsung developers conference. And then Google poached me, and I was a developer marketing manager lead there. And there I, I learned much more about pure marketing because their definition of developer, where I was in my little group, was actually startup. So I missed interaction with developers. I missed talking with engineers daily. And so when, when IBM came calling, I'd been wanting to move into products, specifically designing and building products for developers. And and. They were offering me the opportunity to do that without having to kind of start over in my career as an associate. And also it was working on this new, you know, AI as a platform play that was kind of an industry first. That was very intriguing. So fast forward a couple of years later, I've worked my way up a little bit and I've started my own scrappy team uh, mm -hmm. to do what I think is very necessary work at the company to try to identify and serve new developer communities with our tech, making it very accessible and easy to consume. And also as open source as we can make it. That's awesome. That's such a diverse story. So speaking of that, where you ended there, tell us for our audience, mostly developers, not all, what are a couple of things maybe that Watson's doing now that they're not aware of or any other ways that you'd want developers to know they could be interacting with, playing with either Watson or your other AI VR projects? Yeah, thank you for asking. So we do have a lot of how-to guides and content. You know, what I always try to tell people is try to get to ground truth. There's a lot of noise about what Watson is and isn't. Watson is a suite of products. Watson is also a bunch of brands. Things that I don't work on include Watson Health, Watson IoT. There's Watson e-commerce and other things like that. I focus on and what I think developers are most interested in is sometimes internally we refer to it as core Watson, but it's called the Watson Developer Cloud. And it's a suite of, they always break it down differently, but I think between 12 and 14 services that do everything from visual recognition to speech to text, language translation, data manipulation, and everything in between, natural language understanding, chatbot training. And I would just say, Google that, Watson Developer Cloud, check out the services. You know, we and a lot of competitors offer a lot of the same functionality, but two quick things to answer your question that are differentiators for us that may be of interest to developers. Yeah. Number one is that we have this notion in many of our services, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a second, that you can retrain our algorithms for your purposes. That's one, and the second thing is, we take the position that we are the data safe company, so we're the we're the company that does not want to collect your data and aggregate that and then give that to all your competitors. You own your data, you keep it, and it's in your own organization. But you can nonetheless build you know, usefulness out of our services on top of what's already there. And here's an example. As far as I know, this is fairly unique. Our visual recognition service, Watson Visual Recognition, 
It comes out of the box with a number of really great features, just like our competitors. You can upload a picture of three dogs and it'll say puppies, and these are the breed, the golden retriever, and there's three, and this is the setting, these are the grass they're on, etc. It'll tag the photo. But you can also, and this is actually kind of interesting, I'm sorry, I just keep going back to VR, it's top of mind. But I ran a hackathon last year. It was very small and closed, and it was only some gaming industry veterans that, that we invited. Specifically, I wanted to see what they did with visual recognition for VR. And so the winning team made use of our algorithm to implement it. I think they called it Watson and Waffles. There's a, there's a video on <laughs> I like it already. Yeah, it's, it was very quirky and hilarious. But they basically created an open source tool that lets you retrain the visual recognition service and build classes. So, so in the game, what you could do is you could draw with uh, the HTC Vive wand remote a key or a ladder and hit send. And it would actually parse that, our service would, and say, oh, that's a key, and populate the game with a 3D key. Really cool in practice, like scribble knots for VR, but it was done in a day, and it was done all on top of and with minimal images required in terms of data set. We were able to take an algorithm which, let's be honest, any of the off-the-shelf visual recognition computer vision algorithms aren't going to recognize a hand-drawn key oh, yeah. as a key. I was going to say, you undersold it yeah. when you said scribble knots, but for sketches? or VR, in that, For VR? Right, well, scri scribble knots goes off text. So what's, yeah. right, what's amazing is the depth of their, not parser, I guess their library, right? That they have all this stuff you'd think of. Right. One thing's always blown my mind is that a tiny child with almost no words who learns one word, like they learn the word dog, that you can show them a photograph of a dog or a cartoon of a dog and they know both are dog because those two things look nothing alike. Like they yeah. have nothing- That's a very good point. Programmatically describable and common that I can understand. But the Watson can do that now if a sketch is pretty cool. Well, that's so interesting. I wonder if as a kid- you're taught that the dog picture is a symbol of the real thing. And so you associate the picture as a symbol and you actually think of an actual dog. And that's how they're able to associate I have that. an 18-month-old daughter kind of going through this phase right now. And it, it, is, oh, yeah. it is pretty amazing. It, it's, you can't keep track of like what you taught them, but you certainly didn't teach them anything about like symbols. You might have shown a few different pictures and said, what's this dog? But like, it is amazing the generalizations that they're able to make so fast from yeah. having seen the dog one. Actually, that was actually one of the one of the earliest examples. Like, my daughter had known like two dogs and immediately could recognize any dog that she saw in the world as a dog. Wow! Right? It's like they they get a hole that even though they can't process the parts in a way that I don't understand. Yeah. One notable misidentification is that she has a stuffed polar bear animal, which is now a dog. <laughs> um, officially yeah, a dog we call it dog the bear see that could just be evolution because she's <laughs> she's never going to encounter a polar bear in a life and death situation so it's no longer necessary for her to differentiate them. i mean it's a Knock very dog like polar bear so the polar dog <laughs> i forget what my point even was but i mean i think, I think it was going. still a good one but to so anything else michael whether it's other things you guys are working on or personal loves or causes anything else you want to make our audience aware of wow yeah, that's 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 the thing. I would say use your imagination to envision a future powered by AI and even maybe taking the form of AR or VR that is hopeful and can augment human ability and help to future-proof the world from being dystopian. This all requires planning and it requires people who have good ideas to actually go ahead and try to implement them and get them into the mainstream consciousness. And so I think that I'm always trying to warn people, it's not the danger of AI, it's not the danger of robots, the danger of technology, it's the danger of our minds and our imagination, making it so that that's what we envision and that's what we do. Because, you know, without any action, we are going to go to a more dystopian world where there's technological unemployment. And if we don't think in terms of that stuff, if we don't think about 
you know, what does it really mean to be human? What do we want? Do I want a coal job or do I want to provide for my family and be happy? You know, I think these are all really big meta considerations, but it starts with how we envision using artificial intelligence and related technologies. That's kind of a lot, but I think it's really important because we're at a moment where there's a lot of consternation and outrage and, and negativity, at least in America, that I can see. And, and I think that it's important that we hold on to the hope because actually the future you know, has a lot more positive possibilities than ever before, given this technology. We just have to make that into a reality. There's my dump speech. Well, I'll tell you, Michael, it's a phenomenal sound speech. I really appreciate <laughs> your being on with us. I hope you'll stick around for the rest of the program. And I just want to say, I don't think I've had anyone talk about this field in a way that felt so thoughtful and balanced before. And so it's phenomenal. Thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Also, I think you're probably our first technologist slash musical theater professional. So <laughs> this has been a great day I for appreciate. me. Aside from you all. That's true. I guess that is, that, is, that is true. So that brings us, of course, to the most serious segment, where we are preparing a constitution for Stack Overflow, as loyal listeners know. And each week, we bring you, our listeners, a constitutional proposal, and you will decide whether that proposal becomes an amendment and is, in fact, amended to, attached to, affixed in some way to our new constitution. I think it's stapled. Stapled, yes. <laughs> yes. When I can find staples, it's stapled. Based on the buttons and applications, I assume a paperclip is what's used to attach everything <laughs> in the world. But last week's question that has been voted on and the results shall be read is one must always use rebasing instead of merging when dealing with branches in Git. And that came from our own team, so it will not get a special name, where Pro was prefer rebasing over merging and Khan was prefer merging over rebasing. And here with the results of last week's proposal is our news editor, Ilani Itsaki. Drumroll, please. 83% Khan. Holy That's moly. A lot. What? Yeah. A yeah. Decisive, a decisive vote. Yeah. So most people merge. As a general guideline, apparently, based on popular opinion, you're supposed to merge, yeah? I guess. <laughs> David, how do you feel You're about it? You're struggling with the will of the people, <laughs> if I'm hearing your tone correctly. <sighs> I mean, you know, this is the problem with democracy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only problem with democracy. I mean, it's exemplary of the problem with democracy. <laughs> I'm gonna, I hate saying this because I don't know who it comes from, and I don't like quotes that I know I'm stealing something, but the essence of democracy is three wolves and a sheep discussing what to have for dinner. An old favorite of mine. But uh, shout out to Mego at the only Mego. Han, those who edit their Git history are doomed to repeat it. Nice. <laughs> nice. Maintaining nice. a historical context of learning and improving as yeah. we move forward. Mego, you are the winner. You get a sticker. Mego will receive a, a sticker. sticker. Which brings us to how you can win your own sticker by responding to this week's proposal, which, oh dear, comes from our own David Fullerton. I am not as excited as I was just a second ago, but let's see how this goes. David submits, it is forbidden to participate in a hangout or other video conference of any sort while working on a treadmill desk or any other form of treadmill. I take back my skepticism, David. This is an excellent proposal, which will heretofore be known as maybe the Nick Craver Amendment, since he is the only person who uses this. Let's let's talk about why this is horrible and wrong. we got a few people in the office who have John the, Chen who has treadmills. One, right? uh, yeah, but he's John never does here have to one. use it. John does have So I think most of our listeners know there was a real problem in society where for a while desks didn't do anything except be a place to stick your computer and lean things on and write on them. And someone thought desks should do lots of things. They should stand up. But then all the desks had to go up and down because that was the only thing people could think of that would not directly interfere with a desk's actual purpose of holding stuff level. Right. right. And then that got kind of stale because everyone has those desks that go up and down. Boring. God knows we do. 
And so they had to do something else, sort of like how now TV screens have to have a slight curve because you have to have a reason to buy a new television, even though no one needed that. And so now some desks literally have a treadmill built into them. Well, it's really an accessory you buy for your desk. Oh, I see. It's like if you just if you just took a regular treadmill and sawed off all the parts that stand up that you hold on to and slid it under your desk. That's all we're talking about. It's like a no tall thing in front treadmill so it'll fit under a desk. There's like a remote that actually comes up and sits on your desk so that you You can can get them built into the desk but you're better off buying a separate one I think. So I think I already have an answer but David I'm going to ask what's the problem? Why should this sounds like we're trying to help with you know with the childhood obesity and all these problems. I have no problem with the treadmill. I'm a advocate. Okay. I've considered getting you're one wrong. myself. All right, you're right. Your time's over. That's crazy. Okay, go it's on. a little, you know, when you're on a call with somebody and they're panting and out of breath and their head <laughs> is bobbing up and down, it's just, it's a little distracting. My biggest problem is it's one of those things where, like, you don't get the contextual signals fast enough. Like, it's not like, oh, we got a treadmill yeah. desk situation. You can't see the treadmill. No. You just, you just hear the, the heavy breathing and the panting, and you're like, what is going on? And then you realize, oh, they're walking on their treadmill again. Yes. But what if the call is actually about being in a treadmill class remotely? You're all just walking, and you're trying to push oh. each other on. <laughs> what if the treadmill only exists in virtual reality? Oh my God, hang on, Mike, I'm pretty sure you just invented Peloton, but for treadmills is what you got, and you should just go pitch that to VCs just like that. There's a lot of money to be had here, this I think. That's a great idea. But yeah, I think, David, you know what creeps me out, which is you're never like, oh, it's a treadmill day. At first, you're just always like, do they have music on I can't hear? Like, what's the, they're kind of like rocking to the beat, and then you start <laughs> hearing the panting in the microphone, and it gets super creepy, and then you figure it out, but that it's weird. It's very, very, very weird. And then when you realize, up until then you didn't, it constantly feels like someone's going to crash into you because now you know they are like actually walking forward and striding. And I find it all super stressful. Actually, it makes you feel judged because you're like, oh, they're working out and working and I'm just sitting or standing here like a schlub. Like now I feel now I feel lazy. I just love that your worldview is your first reaction to anyone doing anything good for them. Is that jerk trying to show me I'm not doing a thing I should be doing? (laughs) I'm not happy for them. Show off. I'm fine with you, you know, exercising and being healthy. Just don't do it in a way that implies that I should be exercising and being healthy. By which you mean doing it where in any way you are aware or of such activity. Exactly. It's the same thing when I drive by, you know, the gym and I can see cars in the parking lot. I'm like, ah, I just I don't want to see worst. that. It, may, it just makes me feel bad and I don't want to feel bad. Wow. So which one is pro and which one is con so that we don't make the mistake as a couple of weeks ago? I understood. And I understand this is going to sound confusing, but the pro is you are in favor of a ban. You're in favor of banning this. And the reason is we're not going to make a law saying you have to be on a treadmill. That would be lunacy. This is like an anti-murder law. The only law can be you can't do it. You're not allowed to do it. And so if you are in favor of banning treadmill desks during such time as you are participating in video calls of any sort, even on Skype, I hear people use that then you are pro. And if you believe that people should be allowed to bob and pant as they wish while on a video call with you, then you are con. You do not wish to see such a law enacted. And it is a government overreach. Are we a government? Not yet. Give us time. <laughs> In any case, you can post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast with pro or con and your explanation, which you know has to fit into the Twitter rule thing that's always changing now. And you may also submit your ideas for future constitutional amendments using the same hashtag, Stack Overflow Podcast. And if they are, in fact, passed into fake law, the amendment will be named after you. 
Which brings us to our second sponsor for the day. Our podcast this week is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve vast amounts of data. DigitalOcean thinks developers who try Spaces will love it. So they're making trying it easy. New and existing DigitalOcean customers can get two free months of Spaces by going to do.co. You heard that right, do.co slash Stack Overflow. And speaking of DigitalOcean... We had someone from DigitalOcean last night, actually, Saudia. She's the senior technical recruiter. She was here for an event that we had, and Rachel's here to tell us more about that. This is an exciting segue because <laughs> wow. we had a huge event last night. And Rachel, tell us, we're kicking off our big, our New York City report just came out. Is that right? Yes. So the New York City Developer Hiring Ecosystem Report has a bunch of stats about developers in New York City. Go figure. Again, very aptly named. So Rachel, I'm sorry, let's go back for a second. You are our content marketing manager right here. Tell our listeners who are not perhaps already familiar with your blog work and your team's blog work, but share, what, what do you do here for us? Yes. So I work mainly on the talent side of Stack Overflow. So Stack Overflow talent. I help write content so employers can effectively hire developers. So how to write good recruiting emails, how not to spam developers, what developers care about in a new job, stuff like that. Rachel is the one, or I should say she and her team are the ones who are teaching recruiters what they are doing that you hate and how not to do it anymore. I shouldn't say all recruiters. Many recruiters have already learned probably from Rachel, but they spend <laughs> a lot of time trying to, I think, convey what we think will help recruiters find better talent by doing the things that, that really what developers are looking for in finding jobs. So you're making the world a better and safer place for both recruiters and devs. So thank you for that. But tell us about this report. So who wrote this crazy thing? What are some of the highlights? Yes. So I actually wrote it, but I couldn't have done that myself without all the great data from our insights team. So they pulled all the information from our annual developer survey, as well as users' behavior on Stack Overflow. So tags that people are using when they ask questions and answer questions. So with both of those, we kind of had a bunch of different takeaways to share that are relevant to both developers and people who are trying to hire developers. So this report's really all in the New York City developer landscape. Yes. What percent of developers in New York are pigeons? <laughs> I don't know. At least 14. You 14%. told me you had the highlights like ready. Okay, okay. So what, what were some of the most interesting takeaways, Rachel? Yeah, so 10% of developers that are in the United States are actually located in the New York metro area. And we define that as New York City as well as the suburbs like Hoboken, Long Island, Westchester County. Commuting distance, basically. Yes, basically. Okay, so let's put this in perspective. We get all this from our traffic, right? And we, we're relatively confident based on a lot of our analysis. We see all of the world's developers, at least in English-speaking countries. How many developers are there in the New York City metro area? 446,000. Okay, so does that mean there's 4.46 million, roughly, developers in the country, right? If we go... One-tenth of developers in the U.S. are in the New York City metro area. Okay, so you've got 4.5 million developers. I was told there'd be no math in this podcast. In the U.S., and how many of them are in, like, how much is city-city versus suburbs and rest of the metro area? Yeah, so 4% is in Manhattan specifically, and then 6% is in the five boroughs. And this is probably a data source question. I might be getting into the weeds here, but I'm curious. We're measuring mostly where they hit us from. Right. So the people that like work in the suburbs but come into the city won't show as suburbs, which this makes more sense. We're saying the 4% in Manhattan or presumably 4% of the nation's developers work in Manhattan, we would think. Yeah. And then if you work from home, you know, it could count as both. But. Right, right. And then 6% in the rest of the surrounding area. That's higher than I would have guessed. I don't know. David, you probably knew. David knows things. Yeah, I totally, totally yeah. knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. 
So what else? What else jumped out as sort of maybe interesting about the New York City region particularly? The most popular programming language that developers in New York City use was Python. Hmm. About 66,000 preferred Python. And then Java was a close second with about 61,000 respondents. Interesting. Popular meaning used or liked? (laughs) We asked their programming language of choice, so it could be interpreted as what they use or enjoy using. Java, huh? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love Java. I'm just, oops, sorry. Harsh. (laughs) That's quite the burn on Java. Sheesh. It's interesting. I think we've talked about this before, but both of those are like languages taught to new developers in school typically those those tend to be like the two languages you learn it was java for a long time and now it's shifted to python and so it's something we've looked at and i think there was a post on the growth of python and saw a really strong like seasonality to it when schools come back in session it spikes same with java that makes a lot of sense Actually, I just pulled up the post. Java has been kind of steady. Python has been growing like crazy. Yeah, we had a data team report just recently, right? On kind of the yeah, it was last month, early last surprising month. Surprising acceleration. Mm-hmm. So, what else jumped out, Rachel? So, everyone's favorite topic: money. The median salary for a developer in New York City is a hundred thousand dollars. Does that compare to the national norm? It's about eight percent higher, which is not really surprising because of the cost of living in New York City which and the is, surrounding. To areas. my understanding, six thousand four hundred and twelve percent higher than the norm in the U.S. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and obviously, this depends on your experience level, your job title, things like that. And we kind of go further into that into the report, but just on a median level, it's a hundred thousand. Interesting. And the data for the salary stuff comes from our annual developer survey mostly? Correct. And then you can also see that in our salary calculator. Yes, our recently launched salary calculator. If any folks listening have not yet seen our salary calculator, you can go to stackoverflow.com slash jobs slash salary, Yep, if I recall correctly. Or you may find a shortcut if you get to stackoverflow.com and see a little new stuff indicator at the top bar. You can click that and it will take you right there. But you can calculate what developers in your region, if it is one of the regions we cover, we started with a limited number that was kind of focused on places we had really, really good trustworthy data. And on top of learning kind of where your salary may fall and if your employer is the best or screwing you over, or there could be other circumstances, I suppose, but I'm sticking with the binary. You're up for it. You can also submit what your salary is. It is totally anonymous. It will not be shared or linked to you or anything horrible like that. And it actually helps us continue to make the calculator smarter and also more accurate in any given region for any given dev type. So go check it out, please. So Rachel, anything else? What else are folks talking about? Anything else in the report that was surprising, exciting? Yeah, so developer employment and if they're looking for a job or not is always a hot topic. And we found that 58% of developers in New York City are open to new job opportunities. They're not really actively looking, but if the right job came on them and fell in their lap, they would be willing to take that. I don't know how to put that in perspective. So does that make them more open to jobs than other developers, less open? So 75% globally were open, so it's a little lower in the city. Okay, so 75% of developers say they're either looking for jobs or open to job opportunities. While in New York, it's only 58% of developers, Mm -hmm. which is actually a fairly significant difference, right? So what do we get there? I hate math. So it seems like New York City-based or New York City metro area-based developers, fewer of the ones working here are open to a new job than the national average. Right. And then, you know, some said, I'm actively looking for a job, and then some that I'm not interested at all. So those are kind of like the two ends of the spectrum. And then in the middle was that 58%. Really interesting. I wonder how many devs we have in particular 
Lana and I actually live in the same neighborhood in our neighborhood in Brooklyn because there are so many stickers <laughs> of like languages and oh, interesting. Dev, stickers, dev stickers like all yeah. e- all over everything. So I think we have what like 10% of New York's just in our neighborhood alone. I assume you just run around putting stack overflow stickers over all of those. Over every single one of them. Yeah, absolutely. My, my understanding is that is a capital offense in the sticker pasting <laughs> community. What I loved about what the panel said was that it didn't matter whether people were actively looking for jobs or not, that they wanted to keep the connections open. It didn't matter if you were looking five months from now, a year from now, or five years from now, that they wanted to keep the line of communication open with people so that no matter when they were looking for a job, that they'd be there. Yeah, it seems like well, one of the things, I don't know, Rachel, tell me if you've seen that, but over time, it feels like what we've learned is because developers are in such high demand, because it's such a skilled job, it almost feels like a much, much, much larger percent, the survey keeps reinforcing this, of the people who get hired don't go into this job seeking, job searching mode. They're hired away from some job they're at and they're comfortable in. And not that they weren't looking at all, but like they're in some zone between like, I'm happy enough here, or I'm kind of, you know, if I'd want to hear about stuff. And in that world, it sort of feels like you have to, as an effective recruitment technique, be building up long-term relationships because you can't just be sitting around looking at all these people popping into the active seeker world. It's not one of those, it seems like, industries where most of them get there. Exactly. You can't just post a job listing and go to bed and wake up and hope you're going to have 100 applicants. You have to do a little more work for developers. So from the event last night, I heard there was press and lots of people here and lots of any, anything particularly interesting or exciting from the speakers or the panel that you took away? Yeah, we had Uber, DigitalOcean, and Jet.com. So Jet.com is actually based in Hoboken. So, you know, they're not in the city. So there were some differences there in how they recruit. They recruit in like a Jersey accent, I assume. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Hey, yo. (laughs) You want a job? (laughs) That was beautiful. (laughs) And also that Uber is against remote work. Completely against remote work. Oh, no. Interesting. I mean, they have a bunch of offices, but they found that it didn't work for them. Well, they're great in every other respect. Yeah. So oh, I guess okay. Like, you know. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering who'd be first. <laughs> There's such a paragon of, of engineering culture in every other way. Yeah, we can give them a pass on that one thing. It I seems suppose. like it's possible that nuanced, complex, challenging ways to form bridges in social interaction may not be their strongest suit as a company. We shouldn't pick on Uber. It was wonderful. They shared what works for them and what doesn't work for them. So we do appreciate their participation. It's not for everybody, but they're wrong because remote work is the right way to be. That's correct. How Having said that, Rachel, anything else? You can see all the findings at s.tk slash NYC. If you're like Jess and you want to know what developers look like in Brooklyn, you can find that on the report. All right. <laughs> what do developers look like in Brooklyn? Fears like a problematic Google search to <laughs> like me, but you're on your own, friends. We will link to the report in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much for being on. I hope you will also stick around and at least participate in our nonsense. Which, if my agenda slash clock is accurate, should bring us to... AIM, AOL's long-running instant messenger service that was core to many people's first social experiences on the internet, will shut down once and for all on December 15th. AOL announced the shutdown last week, acknowledging that people now communicate in new ways online, so AIM is no longer needed. The new ways are not that different from the old ways, really. We type in text boxes and the text appears in front of other humans. I think it's just so sad because of the nostalgia factor. Yeah, I'm envisioning like this men's room symbol dude who's like mid-step with like a single tear running out of his eyeless face. I don't know. ASL? 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 American Sign Language? 
What? Is that his name? How old are you? Are you being serious? What's ASL? Age, sex, location. It's the creepy thing you say to someone when they join a chat room. The strangers. Yeah. Age, sex, yeah. location. Oh, oh, I remember this. To get context. That sounds so weird now. It didn't sound that weird yeah. then. That's really no, weird. No, no, it was no, creepy it was... then, too. Okay, okay. You just didn't maybe know how creepy it was. I, I think I was, was just creepy. old and no one was talking to me that way. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're only a couple years older than yeah, me. I, and a I... couple of years is a big deal for instant messenger. Well, AIM had a good run. There was a window of five, six years where you had to hit in that window. It was like... It was texting. It was what texting became. It was strangely before texting, which is yeah, weird no, to totally think about. Was. That there was this internet texting before you had a cell phone you could easily text yep. on. Because back then all they had was numbers and you had to annoyingly like type mm-hmm. words yep. using the numbers. And it was a huge pain. And, and then somebody had the brilliant idea of putting keyboards on phones. And, and then the world changed. And AIM was... And that's how the Palm Trio took over the phone market. Like, who here had the most embarrassing screen name? I can remember two of mine. I had more than that, but I can remember two. I remember one was, I think it was something Trinity Forever, I think, because... (laughs) Tell me it's a Matrix reference. Oh, Oh, love it. It was absolutely a Matrix reference. You're lucky you didn't get a tattoo at that moment in your life, basically. No, the second one, my other one that I actually remembered was Freestar Inc., I-N-K, because I have, um, make notebooks. I have three stars tattooed I on my stomach. I thought you meant ink like you were, oh, like you were a corporation. Cool. Yeah, so, it's, <laughs> so it should have been. It's a little less um, embarrassing. But yeah, like, it was Trinity Forever or Trinity <sighs> Always or something like that. From I hope it was like the numeral four and then E-V. <laughs> no, I never, I never liked that. And it was weird when I was on AIM because I wouldn't really do the like shortened things. Like oh, I always man. had to like write out complete sentences the away messages you'd put song lyrics oh, in them away messages. that expressed your current emotional oh, state uh, yours were all confusing <laughs> ambiguous ways and then people yeah. would IM you and be like hey are you okay i saw your sad <laughs> emo <laughs> song lyrics and we're like yeah i'm having a hard day but wait before we move on and before i judge you it's really important did you pick that Trinity name in the period after the first Matrix, but before the other two came out? Because that's the only okay time. That's the most important I question. was obsessed with the first movie. That was the AIM time period. The second movie I wasn't super into, so it had to have been after the first Nobody one. was. Probably the Matrix movies like perfectly bookended the AIM time period. Yeah. Because yeah, by right. the time the second one came out, I'm pretty sure we had cell phones. So Alana, so I think you're about to confess yours. Yeah, I convinced my mom finally to get AOL when we had been using, I was already in college at this point, and I was using dial-up through the Rutgers email system in order Uh. to talk to people. And my roommate allowed me to have a screen name on her account. So my first one was FreakBiz. (laughs) Because at 17, I thought I was a freak and I was in show business. Oh, so edgy. Okay, yeah. But I'm probably the most normal of strange people. Too edgy there for me. <laughs> the two edgy and a four. And then it changed to FreakBiz One when she kicked me off her AOL account. We got our own and it became FreakBiz One. You had to be FreakBiz One because yourself because I had the t- other. Oh, yes, that's terrible. Exactly. That's, that's messed up. And then when I realized I should probably have a more normal one, it was Izzy Rizzy Co., which is my. They're my initials Way and my brother's normal. initials. And my mom used to use that when we got programs for our Apple computer. Sure. Uh, and you had to register it, and that would be our Remember our we called them programs? Name. Yeah. Yeah. I like, <laughs> I like that. They came in boxes from software, et cetera. Or even application. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's just one syllable. Michael, did you have Apps. screen names? Oh, I did. I had AIM. I had it. I was a fan. But I was so obsessed with being unique in my own individual 
that because my name is Michael and everyone on earth has that name, I didn't want to be, for some reason, my adolescent self's, you know, worst phobia was I would have a nondescript name and a number like Mikey 14579A. And so I thought I made up a word. Turns out it's a type of wax, but I spelled it differently. <laughs> so it basically just complicated my life. And I was called Paraffin. P-E-R-E-F-I-N. And yeah, oh, I, I thought paraffin. I was cool and different and, and creative. So that's and... what you, we use to wax our bodies. So you tried yeah. to make up a word and, and failed. Yeah, there's candles too, right? <laughs> there are no words that are completely distinct. Well, that I can imagine. I, I tried very hard. Well, my 14-year-old self could imagine. This is like an Andy Warhol thing where nothing's original anymore. <laughs> <laughs> very meta and depressing, yeah. Oh, man. Rachel, did you have? Mine wasn't too embarrassing. It was my maiden name, which is Mulady, and then a number, which is 33. So not very creative. But my <laughs> biggest aim memory is messaging smarter child which was essentially like a, a robot Above, and he yeah. would talk to you and you could swear at him you know like i'm 12 <laughs> like, and and he would talk back to you and oh, that was amazing and look that. how far we've come today with all the bots we have you know milady 33 sounds like you were the 33rd on some hookup artist's list and that's what <laughs> yeah. in his contact list you know? see you promised us it might get creepy and here we are <laughs> Here we are. Not, you're not being creepy, just acknowledging creepiness oh, in the world. Man. Miladies one through ten got like free fedoras sent to them. <laughs> I like how Rachel's story just confirms that like no matter how far society progresses, wherever we go, whatever planets we ultimately live on, as we interact with more and more realistic and lifelike AIs and robots of any sort, the first thing we will always do is type curse words or scream curse words at them to see <laughs> yeah. what they do. <laughs> That's the kind of society we are. David, tell us all about your aim. Oh, use. man. My aim was lame. Lame makes sense for you. I get that. I, I feel like I would have guessed that with a few guesses. Aegis1590. But the more interesting story is I actually wooed my now wife on aim way back in the day. And uh, I should basically fully credit aim for being wow. married to this day because I love story so much. a lot without, of us have been wondering how that particular con worked for you at all so. aim, i think <laughs> i never would have had the courage to talk to her or ask her out which i did online three times before she finally said yes see alana it's like this whole thing was a beautiful story arc to like break down your fear of technology separating us <laughs> david ends on his story of finding true love thanks to electronic communication so coincidentally yeah. my parents met on a jewish chat room on aol well my mom and my stepfather <laughs> that's fantastic yeah they were talking about torah and then next thing you know <laughs> aol had jade <laughs> i guess it wasn't for dating per se that was a, a side effect yeah well i mean it was specifically a chat room for I don't know. Jewish they were meeting yeah, Jewish yeah, singles in your area. About the Bible. Sure, it's affinity. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, okay. Okay. Wait. So, yep. David, so please tell us the story doesn't start with ASL as the first thing. No, no. I mean, so I knew her. I actually, the only other girl I ever dated was her best friend in ninth grade. So, like, I knew her, but then we kind of went our separate ways. And then it was actually intrigued <laughs> by the drama thing. It was the school musical where we met again. And oh, oh man, my God. it's a long Who story. Who did you play but... and what were you singing? In... Yep. Good oh question, good gosh. question. This was The Music Man. I was Ewart Dunlop, I think, in that one. And Sorry, The Music Man's the one about the pernicious impact of billiards on society. Am I correct? That's correct. That's okay. correct. Anyway, okay. that, that part's less interesting. Back to the AIM thing. I remember having to go and ask one of her 
friends who I uh, was in a class with what her screen name was. And I think I made up some excuse why I needed it, but he knew exactly why I wanted it. It like wasn't subtle at all when someone you only sort of know starts chatting you on AIM. Like she knew what was going on from the beginning. And she just sort of, she strung me along for quite a few months before finally saying yes. What was your like cold open line the first time you chatted? Oh, with I don't, I don't even remember. What's up, girl? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if David lived for a thousand years, he would never find any circumstances in which to utter that particular phrase. Actually, it was the early 2000s, so it was probably just, what's up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ugh. I met a guy. I, I think I only met like one actual guy on AIM, and he was this Australian guy. Did I'm he so type excited. Funny? <laughs> he typed upside down, actually. That makes sense. <laughs> so I was so excited because I was like, he's from Australia, and we talked on the phone two times. Like two actual times. And then my mom was like, you are never speaking to this person again because I am not paying for you to call Australia for this dude. I, his name was Joel. Oh, my God. I can't believe I remember that. His name was Joel. Wait, it was definitely Australia, not New Zealand Joel, right? Because <laughs> definitely Australian. I like that your mom did not like smash the computer because you had met some strange, unknown age man on the internet who was not talking the phone. It was because the phone bill was going to be hot. It's going to be so hot. Well, I think she knew that we were never going to actually meet, you know, because he's in Australia. I would mostly just play chess and checkers with people. Oh, async games yep. are awesome. Oh, yeah, that's right. Could do that. That's all pre-words with friends. I played real games over AIM, and that was fun, over dial-up and, like, real-time strategy games or something, and all of a sudden everything would freeze, and you'd be like, Mom, hang up the phone! I'm on a game! <laughs> I can't command or conquer if you're going to pick up the phone! It was Age of Empires. That's uh, what. Oh, that nice. Way back in the day. Which, there was some really interesting technology behind that. There was a post about how they actually made it work. The amazing thing is that it worked at all over what the bandwidth available 2400 was. 2400 baud or whatever it was back then. Yeah, it was basically the games played in parallel on your two computers and just, like, synced. They didn't sync their state. They synced, like, keystrokes and mouse movements between them, which is why every once in a while a game would just crash and there was no recovering because they got out of sync like it worked almost all the time but it would occasionally something would happen and you'd get out of sync and then the game was over because there was just no way to recover anyway a sad story there was a really interesting <laughs> post i could probably dig it up that somebody who worked on it wrote about how they made it work in the era of dial-up and really slow connections and high latencies how you were actually able to play this real-time strategy game online what was your screen name jay my screen name was J A. 5Y, and in answer to your obvious question, the 5 is silent. <laughs> so you were the first Jay-Z. Uh, yes, that's it. Most people say that about me. They, mm. they mix us up a lot. I was actually in college. Email was like this new, it wasn't new, but it was like new as a mainstream. We had this thing called Blitzmail that everyone used at my school, and it was, well, everyone in college kind of emailed at this point. But in one of my emails, I was like typing really fast, and I typed J-A-5Y as like a typo. I think the 5 is by the A, or I don't know. And, um, and then I went to fix it, and I was like, no, that's cool. I'm going to... And then so I just added the five <laughs> is silent and sent it. And then I added that to my, like, oh, my, uh, like, you know, reply blocks and everything. It wasn't and like elite speak sort of JC? Now, by taking ownership of that, it eliminated that problem where, like, then I could always get the username I wanted because that was always available but without feeling like I was one of 312 of some other. I took it back. It was my number. <laughs> well, you've gone and wasted another hour of your life listening to the Stack Overflow podcast number 119, recorded Thursday, October 12th at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City whose signature song would also work as the theme song to HBO's Oz. You want to make it here? Can you be king of the hill? Can you be top of the heap? 
You want to wake up in a place where no one sleeps? This podcast has been brought to you by Oracle. Go to developer.oracle.com to learn about all the ways Oracle supports developers like you. And Spaces by DigitalOcean. For a two-month free trial of Spaces, go to do.co slash stackoverflow. And Epcot Center, home of the incredible World Showcase. Epcot's 11 unique nation lands let lazy Americans travel the world without ever leaving Orlando. Enjoy all their sights and sounds until you find the churro stand you were looking for. It's in Mexico, not Morocco, silly. And then head straight back to Captain EO. Our audio engineer is Carlos Hernandez. Audio editor is David Greenlee. Technology concierge is Michael Rosa. Our producer is Jess Pardue. Our executive producer is Caitlin Pike. On behalf of David Fullerton, Jess Pardue, Ilani Itsaki, and the protagonist parents who tragically die in the first 10 minutes of every single Disney movie. I'm your host, Jay Hanlon, and your homework this week is to read Zach Holman's post. It's a blog post about his struggles with clinical depression. It sounds sad, but Zach is actually a developer and also a great and funny writer. More importantly, he shares not only how he got help, but how you can support the people around you who struggle with clinical depression. The article is actually genuinely empowering, I promise. And since 7% of American adults suffer from clinical depression, if there are more than 13 people in your life that you care about, it almost certainly impacts someone you know. Take 10 minutes, read the blog post, and you'll be ready to be a hero later if somebody needs it. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. 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 I was like, oh, yeah, I remembered it. But all I actually remembered about it is that it was a fat blue cat. <laughs> I figured your point was more than a fat blue cat. Yeah, I thought a Doraemon <laughs> was something I would catch in an app that pretends it's AR, but isn't really <laughs> AR. It's basically just... And why are all future dystopian worlds dark and rainy? Exactly. <laughs> why is it always raining? You need to play Shadowrun. Shadowrun is great. Isn't that literally called the pathetic fallacy when the weather reflects the intended mood of the situation? I think hmm, I yeah. may be misquoting, but I believe the I don't know the writing. That a or... thing that they taught you in theater school? Jay? Yeah, I don't know. In between breathing classes, that's what we talked about. Back <laughs> this week's proposal, which comes from, I don't know where this comes from. Do we know where Me. this comes from? Oh, <laughs> me.